I thank you, Ken, and our worship team and our instrumentalists this uh, morning. Good to be back with you uh, this morning. Let me encourage you, if you're a guest uh, with us, whether in person or online, we would, uh, as you were uh, told during the welcome time, we would love to be able to have a conversation with you about the life of faith. We know that uh, whether in person or online, that sometimes you are dealing with circumstances, and around those circumstances, God is able to work and is capturing your attention in a way that, that maybe he couldn't at another normal time or season in your life. So we would love to, to come alongside you and help you and uh, to discern the call of God's Spirit, maybe to be a follower of Christ, what that means, what it looks like, uh, how to become a part of this church family. So we do hope that you would just text the word FL Respond to the number that is provided for you, 833-571-3475, and uh, we will follow up uh, immediately with you and to be able to talk with you about whatever it is the Lord may be laying on your heart in uh, a time such as this. It's good to be back. Uh, I know that uh, you enjoyed uh, hearing Mark Terman last week. Uh, he was part, when I was on staff at Green Acres Baptist Church in Tyler uh, back in the early 80s, uh, Mark, along with about five or six guys, and Patty was in that uh, youth, youth group, there were about five, six, seven guys, a very unusual uh, youth group. Uh, these six, seven guys emerged out of that group to go into vocational ministry. Uh, Mark, among them, a very gifted group of uh, young men been faithful in service to the Lord for the past uh, 35, 40 years, and I know you enjoyed uh, hearing from him. He enjoyed very much being here with you and commended you highly, so I appreciate you uh, receiving him well. I enjoyed the opportunity to go to Alabama to see my uh, kids. They've, uh, my son and his wife uh, relocated there so we to Alabama, so we wanted to go and to see them. Uh, well, who am I kidding? I wanted to see the grandson. That's the reason I went. And, uh, and for those of you whose mind may be jumping ahead and saying right now, oh, that's the reason. No, it's not the reason. I'm not going to Alabama, uh, not relocating there. There's other, <laughs> other personal reasons, but we will not. When it comes to Alabama, I've been there, done that. So uh, retirement will not be taking me to the state of uh, Alabama. Uh, I want us to look as we continue this haunted faith series, and you'll see later on in the message why I consider this to be a haunting text. But this morning, I, I want to address from Luke chapter 7 the subject matter of reckless knowledge. And so I want you to open your Bible, smart device, whatever it is that you use to follow along, open it to Luke chapter 7. And our focal passages will be verses 36 through 50. I'll, I'll make mention of some preceding verses just to provide some, from con, some context for what is happening here in this particular narrative and the implications for us in, in the life of faith. It was, it was several years ago, it was a graduation day for Texas Tech University, and there was a, a young man I was talking to who was graduating uh, that afternoon, and we had already had a prior conversation, I knew he didn't yet have a job, and so I was asking him, have, have you considered doing graduate studies, going to graduate school? Well, he looked at me like I was from another planet. And he said, if, if, if I finish this and when I graduate today, I'm considering never reading another book in my life. Now, I like to give him the benefit of the doubt that he wasn't being serious, but what I, what I said in response was, now, if you're serious about that, then your education has failed you miserably. Because all an education really does, getting a, deg a degree in hand, 
is to scratch the surface of anything that can be known, could be known, and understood. A really good education creates within us a hunger and a thirst to know more. Even those in the life of our church who have terminal degrees, who are on faculty at Tech or, or at LCU, and, uh, who are involved in higher education, who have terminal degrees, PhDs, the highest, the highest degree attainable in their particular field. They would acknowledge to you that even though they have a terminal degree in their respective field, they have just scratched the surface of everything that could possibly be known in that arena of study. And so our understanding of being a disciple, a follower of Christ, a disciple is a learner, a, a student, then we should understand ourselves as being life learners. We are lifelong students. We should never be satisfied with, with what we know, with what we have understood. When it comes especially to the things of God, there is so much more to be experienced. There is so much more to be understood. There is so much more to be revealed and to be uncovered in our understanding of the things of God. In fact, I would say to you this morning that the most dangerous body of knowledge that you could ever possess in your life is that body of knowledge that makes you unteachable. Now let me say that again. The most dangerous, reckless body of knowledge that you could possibly have is a body of knowledge that makes you unteachable. That makes you satisfied, that makes you think you know all that there is to be known. Because when you have that kind of attitude, it places an individual, it places you in a kind of no man's land. A no man's land where you are stuck between what you think you know and what could be known. Now nowhere is that more evident, that no man's land and that dangerous piece of knowledge that makes you unteachable, nowhere is that more evident than in our passage today. That very first clause sets the stage where, where it says there in verse 36, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to eat with him. Now what led to this, the context that would lead to this Pharisee, Simon, as we will find out his name is later in the passage, what would lead Simon to invite Jesus to, to come and to dine with him in his home uh, was, was an incident that took place. If you look back in the preceding verses, Jesus has given commendation to the life and the ministry of John the Baptist. John, as you will remember, John the Baptist is imprisoned at this time, and uh, he has sent his disciples, his students, to go and to ask Jesus, are you the one, or should we look for another? Jesus isn't offended by this kind of inquiry or questioning at all, and he tells these disciples of John, you go, you go and you tell him the things that you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, uh, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are being raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then God, John, Jesus rather would say regarding John to all those that are gathered, this gathering of people, and among them some Pharisees and lawyers. He would say this about John, I say to you in verse 28, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater 
than he. Then notice the response. When all the people and the tax collectors, we're talking about a group that is despised, that is loathed, tax collectors. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged knowledge. They had come to understand something. They knew something. They knew something that the religious guardians did not, that the religious hierarchy did not. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, the keepers of religion, uh, the keepers of religious status quo, who think they know all that is to be known about God, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So sinners have received him, and the self-righteous reject him. To what then, Jesus says in verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a song of mourning and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a heavy drinker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet, wisdom, knowledge rightly understood, knowledge rightly applied, and yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And out of that situation of gathering of the, a gathering of the people, a gathering of tax collectors, sinners from every walk of life, and some Pharisees and some lawyers that are intermingled to hear what the masses are saying about both John the Baptist and Jesus. Among these Pharisees was a man by the name of Simon who invites Jesus to his house. And we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is willing to go to the house of Simon and to have a meal. I mean, if Jesus isn't going to be guilty of reverse discrimination, I mean, if he's going to go and to, to eat with tax collectors, publicans, and sinners, then, then surely he's going to be willing to go eat with some Pharisees as well. And part of what we have to guard against is we want to project our disdain over 2,000 years of history. We look back and we see scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, and we immediately have, have a disdain for them. Well, the Pharisees were highly regarded. I mean, their, their intentions were even noble, considered noble by the, by the people. They, they were the guardians, the keepers of God's law. And they were held in, in the highest esteem and in the highest regard of the people. And, and we have to be careful about projecting our disdain immediately upon these religious leaders. Because Simon could be different. 
Simon could be a critical thinker. He could be someone who is thoughtful. He wants to, he doesn't want to presume to know who Jesus is. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to judge Jesus on the basis of what, of what his peers, other Pharisees and religious leaders have said about him. Maybe, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he just wants him to come over. I want to judge for myself. His life, his ministry, is he really a prophet or not? But it's an interesting exchange that unfolds because while they are dining in the house of Simon, and this wouldn't have been unusual at all, it seems unusual to us in our 21st century perspective that an uninvited guest would just walk into a dining area. But back then in the ancient days, and there's a, there's a wonderful author and an esteemed scholar on ancient Near Eastern customs and traditions, Kenneth E. Bailey, uh, through, through Pagan Eyes, I think is the title of, of uh, the particular book, uh, Through Peasant Eyes, rather. Through Peasant Eyes, he talks about these kinds of traditions and customs in ancient days, that there wasn't a private life that was lived behind walls and then, and then a public life. No, you were just known for who you were. And there was really no such thing as private parties. Someone invites you to a home in ancient days in that ancient oriental custom and they would invite you to your house. If you were invited to someone's house, it was if it was a large home, then it was probably a courtyard, and an open courtyard, and there may have been some rooms around that, around that courtyard and perhaps a small dining room, but it was all very open. And, and so even if you were an uninvited guest, it wouldn't have been unusual at all for you just to wander in. They would have thought nothing of it. So it's not unusual that this woman that the city has identified as being a sinner, that, that Simon will identify as a sinner, that she just walks in. She's heard that Jesus is there and he's reclining as a at a table eating as would have been the custom in that day where they were leaning breast to breast on the floor, this low, uh, this low profile table. And, and we, would, we would be on the floor on our side breast to breast and we would rest on this elbow and eat with one hand. And so uh, this woman walked in. And there she saw Jesus. She had heard that he was there. And tears begin to flow. She begins to kiss his feet. She's brought an alabaster vial of perfume. She begins to wash his feet and begin to wipe his feet. Uh, after kissing him, she's wiping his feet with her fallen hair. Simon is appalled by this. If he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. That she is a sinner. And out of that, Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the two debtors. And the summation of the parable of the two debtors is that those who have been forgiven much, they love much. Those who have been forgiven the most, they are the most thankful. They are the most gracious. Those who have, who have known the most grace, they are the most grateful and they are the most gracious of people. But what this, what this story reveals is that there is a palpable tension, a palpable contrast between Simon the Pharisee and this woman that has been deemed a sinner. The difference between the two is palpable. You can cut it with a knife. 
But the strength of the story and its value is that it reveals the recklessness of knowledge without wisdom. It reveals the danger of having some knowledge about something without the wisdom to seeing it rightly applied. Oh, it's made evident, notice in, here in, in verses 36 through 39, it, it reveals what we think we know. It begins with the portrait of what we think we know. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with the hair of her head and began kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this is, own, this is his own personal thought, he said to himself, if this man, and he has an obvious contempt at this point, I think, for Jesus, if, if this man were a prophet, he would know. Now, remember that word knowledge. If this man were a prophet, he would know. He'd know what I know. He knows what I, what I think I know. It's a little bit of danger here. Or a, a lot of danger with a little bit of knowledge. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this is who is touching him, that he is a sinner. Now, to benefit fully from this story, and this is something I do in my own devotional reading and the reading of the text, is I'm reading these stories about Jesus. If I'm reading the Gospels, if I'm reading Paul's rebuke of someone, I read myself in the story, not as the protagonist, but the antagonist. I'm the one to whom is being talked about. That is, I'm making myself the bad guy in the story. I don't want to be the good guy. We don't learn anything by always making ourselves the good guy in the story. By standing, by standing myself next to Jesus and going, man, I hope so-and-so's listening to this. Jesus, I'm glad you and I know this and understand this. I just hope the other people or listening, if that's the attitude we take, where we always make ourselves the good guy, then you miss out, we miss out on the very real valuable lessons that are to be realized and understood. And so in the case of this story, if we're really going to gain the greatest benefit from it, you have to consider that you're being spoken of and spoken to as Jesus is speaking to Simon. Because the truth of the matter is, and we hate to admit this, I know, I do. Truth of the matter is, is that each and every one of us in this room are more like Simon than we would like to admit. 
We are more like Simon than, than we would like to admit. Like Simon, what we think we know about God's righteousness, what we think we have understood about the righteousness of God makes us withdraw from those like the woman in the story. Where if we rightly understood the righteousness of God, we would draw, be drawn all the more towards those like the woman in this story. And nowhere is it more revealed that we have wrongly understood that we have the wrong understanding of the righteousness of God. Nowhere is this more evident than our satisfaction with having church walls, sitting in pews behind stained glass, making sure we have ample security at all the doors. And walking out of here every Sunday with a sense of satisfaction that we have done something pleasing unto God because we have come here for an hour and we have sat and endured a sermon. When the reality is, there is more kingdom good accomplished and done by one word of the gospel in a den of thieves than is ever done by 52 sermons in a year preached in a sanctuary to the self-righteous. What we think we know regarding the righteousness of God, we have to be on guard to make sure that our understanding of God's righteousness doesn't make us pull ourselves away from the world we are called to meet, that we sequester ourselves and isolate ourselves so that we do not have to associate with those outside the wall. Now here's the problem we face. And again, this is how we have to align ourselves with Simon if we're really gonna benefit from this story. Our problem, and I'm lumping us all in here. I, I'm preaching as a co-struggler always. Never one has, I never preach as one who has arrived. I preach as a co-struggler. Our problem is no different from Simon the Pharisee. In that in our mind, we think the opposite of sin is virtue. We think that the opposite of sin is virtue. And by that, I mean, and like Simon, if I can just be virtuous, then I can avoid being categorized as a sinner. If I could just pursue virtue, then I can avoid being categorized as a sinner. But what we have to see and understand is that kind of mindset, that kind of understanding, trying to dodge the categorization of being a sinner by being virtuous, all that does is fuel the flames of self-righteousness. And all we're really doing in that, in, in standing upon our own self-righteousness, is it moves us from, from, from grading as an F in our relationship to God to an F minus. By trying to make virtue the opposite of sin, 
We just move from an F to an F minus. The opposite of sin is not virtue. As Kierkegaard reminds us, the opposite of sin is faith. The opposite of sin is faith. That's why Paul would write in Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not of faith is of sin. See, what we have to understand as the church, as the people of God, is that there, there's only two kinds of people. There's only two classifications of people in this world, and both of them are sinners. We don't ever get to dodge that. The only classification of people are uh, two classifications, both are sinners. The one group of sinners, they, they remain in their sin and they are condemned. The other group are sinners forgiven by grace through faith, and they are being redeemed. And if not understood correctly, what you think you know regarding the righteousness of God can possibly leave you condemned. The other side of this narrative as it continues to expand, it's an insight and a revealing of not only what we think we know, but thank goodness we also see what, what Jesus knows. Notice in verses 40 through 48, and Jesus responded, now I want you to read it, you have to envision this in your mind, we're talking about what Jesus knows, what does Jesus understand, and you can kind of see this knowledge that Jesus has and what he knows, it's, it's unveiled in these verses, and Jesus responded and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you, and he replied, say it, teacher. And this is where he tells the parable of the two debtors, a money lender had two debtors, the one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. There's an irony in this. He's judged correctly here. He's misjudged the woman. But he's judged this correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do, do you see this woman? Again, irony is present. He hasn't really seen this woman. He's seeing, through, seeing her through some caricature of who he thinks she is. He has no idea who she is. He hasn't really seen her as God would see her. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Again, what you're seeing is an extension of what, of what happened in that group after he had commended John the Baptist, how he was received by sinners, rejected by the self-righteous. And here in another man's house, he's being received by a sinner, by one that has been called a, sin, a sinner, and being rejected by the host of the house. 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my, for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Now, what this reveals, especially the grammar of this text, that her sins have been forgiven, the words Jesus has spoken are in the perfect tense. Perfect tense is something that has happened in the past that has continuing implications. So the woman's visit was premeditated. She had already been forgiven by Jesus. Somewhere their paths had crossed. She had experienced the forgiving, the forgiveness of, of Christ, his forgiveness, his redeeming purposes. And now hearing that he was in the house of this Pharisee, she makes her, there, her, her way there and pours herself out in loving affection and thanksgiving. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven for she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, again, perfect tense, something you, you've already received from me in the past. Your sins have been forgiven. While there was some mumbling at the table there, which we'll come to, he said to the woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. What does Jesus know that we need to know? What he knows, he knows as a prophet knows. Again, Simon has set the criteria, at least in his mind, in Simon's mind, this is the criteria of evaluating whether or not someone is a prophet. You remember he said if he knew if he was a prophet he would know what kind of woman this is. Jesus knew what kind of woman she was. She was the very kind he came to redeem and had redeemed, had forgiven. But by the criteria set by by Simon Jesus passes the test because he knew what Simon was thinking as well. You see, Jesus knows each and every one of us in ways that others cannot know and do not know. That's why we're to avoid the judging business. We, we judge people on, for superficial reasons, no reasons whatsoever. But no one knows the heart of a man. Nobody knows the circumstances of another person that brings them to the place they are in life, why they are the way they are. That's why judgment has to be left uh, to, to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he does, in fact, know as a prophet knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows our heartbeat in a way that no one else can. I think it's evident that Jesus knows. He knows well those who are in the greatest danger of missing out on God's grace. Jesus knows those that are in the greatest danger of missing out on God's grace. And it's always those who are most familiar with the laws of God. Those in the greatest danger of missing out on God's grace and forgiveness are those that are versed in the Bible. 
that know the laws of God, that are so familiar with the, with the word of God that maybe grew up in church and, and you're familiar with the word of God and you, you know the laws and you measure your life against those laws. You measure your life against the teachings of scripture and you look around and you think, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, I do pretty well on this list. I mean, out of Ten Commandments, you know, there's, you know, I'm, I'm probably good for eight or, you know, seven or eight. That's not bad. You know, that's average. And we compare ourselves to others against this list. And we walk away satisfied. And it fuels the self-righteousness that would cause us to miss out on the grace and the mercy that is available. Another thing I see in this account is that Jesus also knows when tradition needs to be set aside, when tradition has no value. Because you see, Simon's not the only one that's been a bad host. That ancient Near Eastern custom, the, the tradition was when a uh, tradition of hospitality was when someone comes to your house, you, uh, you would you'd provide water, wash their feet. Or you'd give them a kiss. If, it was, if you were a student, if you were a disciple of someone who entered into your house as a guest, you would, you would kiss their hand. If it's someone who walked into your home who was an equal, uh, you would kiss them on the cheek. Jesus receives neither. For refreshment, your head would be anointed with oil. Simon violated tradition, but you know what Jesus did? He violated tradition as well. In the oriental customs of that day and time, the ancient Near East, someone who is a guest in, a, in the home of a host, you would never point out the failures of what they did to someone hosting. You would never point out their failures. But he broke with tradition because he didn't want tradition getting in the way of his eyes being open to the possibilities that were before him. So he recognizes those that are in the most danger of missing out. And he knows finally that we are to be, if we are to be his people, he knows that those who are to be his people will be so as a result of grace and not performance. We will be products of grace and not performance if we are to be the people of God. That's why we need to know what Jesus knows. And finally, very quickly, and this is where it becomes most haunting to me, and that's what can be known. It says in verse 49, after he had reminded the woman of her having been forgiven, in verse 49, and, and then those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? I mean, it's haunting to me to think that we can be that close to Jesus, breast to breast. We can be that close to the Savior and be so blinded by what we think we know that we miss out on what we can know and could know. Well, what could be known? Well, what can be known is grace. 
mercy, forgiven, forgiveness, pardoning. Whether you're, whether you're a, a debtor by 50 or 500, it, it doesn't matter. That's not the issue. I know what our tendency is when the city labels this woman a sinner, Simon calls her a sinner, our minds immediately go to the gutter. I wonder what kind of woman, I wonder what she's up to. And we get all kind of visual speculation in our minds, all these kind of seedy thoughts, wondering what kind of woman she is. She's just a sinner. That's the most often used term when talking about the redemptive work of Christ in the Gospels. Peter acknowledged in chapter 5 of Luke, he's just a sinner. Said to the paralytic, your sins are forget. We want to get caught up in the particular. It doesn't matter what kind of sinner she was isn't the point of the story. Whether you're a debtor of, of 50 or 500, it doesn't matter. Grace and mercy and pardon is available. And the reason that knowledge is vital, not comparing, am I as bad as they are? It doesn't matter. Until we receive by faith this pardon, this grace, this mercy, this forgiveness that Christ longs to offer to all sinners, great or small, it doesn't matter. Until we know that, we will never be the kind of church fully that we need to be. Because church, I don't want you to miss this. This story, as it ends, it screams for the presence of a church. Not just any church. But the kind of church that receives people like this. Verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Where does a woman like this go? In peace. Jesus is telling her, you, you've got to leave Simon's house. This isn't a place where you're welcome. What should be a welcoming place, you're not. What they think they know has excluded you. So you need to leave here. Go in peace. Where does a woman like this go? It screams for the presence of a church, not just any church, but a church that receives people like her. Where does someone like her go? I'll tell you where she goes. She goes back to the streets. She goes back to the street with other sinners, with other people like her desiring the mercies and the forgiveness and the graciousness of God. Because there she's not judged. There she's not labeled. There she can have peace in who she is. I hope and pray that we never know so much that we don't know this. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes as your church, as your people to a world that is broken, to the world that is desperate. 
And Father, we do such a wonderful job as a church family of seeking to reach out in our immediate community among the marginalized, the outcasts, the voiceless, the powerless. And Father, never allow us to become weary in so doing. That your words might be a constant ringing in our ears, that as you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. Might that be our passion. Might we always be that kind of church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we stand this morning for our dismissal, we are given this benediction and final word from Paul to Timothy to take out with us. Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 13, I direct you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without fault or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.